What is up all you macaronis and crazy ponies? That's right, the weird sayings are back because I've heard that some of you have actually missed them. So I'm bringing them back for season two of Surviving the Suck. Before we begin this next episode, I do want to provide a trigger warning because this episode will pertain to topics related to mental illness, suicide ideation, and self-harm. We are not professionals, but if at any point during this episode you feel triggered, please take care of yourself before, during, and after because you matter and it's okay to take care of you first and foremost each and every day. So please do that. We love you. We're here for you. Here is the next episode of Surviving the Suck. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Surviving the Suck podcast. I am so excited. And I know I say this almost every episode, so people are probably like, Haley, you're excited every episode. But I am super excited, especially today, because I have a really, really awesome guest with me. His name is Eric Cusin. Did I say it right, Eric? You did it. You did it very well. Thank you. Okay, I did it. (laughs) I'm telling you, I get so nervous when I say people's names because I don't want to mess it up because people mess up my name a lot. So... But anyways, I have Eric with me today, and he's incredible. Um, He really leads this amazing movement. Same here. And I'm going to have him tell you a little bit about it, but I just think it's really cool what he's doing. He has an Instagram page with over 20,000 followers, and his Facebook has, what, are you over 70,000 likes? Yeah, we both talk. Look, I I think it's cool to have, you know, social media followers because we can get the word out there what it means in terms of actual change given you know some of the suppression tactics that happen online and why certain social media channels choose to allow certain messages to flourish and not i think is interesting but yeah look it's it, it's nice vindication that when it gets out there it shows that it resonates with people and so it gives us reason to then do the boots on the ground type of stuff we can talk about but i, pre- I appreciate you bringing that up no i i just think it's cool because you know i always say with my organization it's not about the numbers but it just to show that you've grown it to that point and you've put so much passion and energy into it is really cool to me because I think it's just a way of branching out and reaching more people. So we can dive all into this, but Eric, I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little bit more just so my audience can kind of get to know who you are and sure. what you do. Yeah. You know, I'll, cause I can get long winded. I've shared that with you. Um, so I'll, I'll give the, the cliff notes version of who I am. And then if you need me to go more into the actual story itself, let me know. But I, I, you know, was a sports executive for 15 years. So worked in the NBA league office and then for WNBA teams, NBA teams, and then NHL teams most recently. Wow. And six months into my tenure, I was a chief revenue officer down with the Florida Panthers in sunrise, Florida, living out of Miami, awesome new experience, new ownership group. And my brain and my body six months in just hit a brick wall and I fell apart like dysfunctional and went the allopathic route of trying to heal. Um, came back to New York where the family's from. I didn't have any other choice because I needed the help. I couldn't live on my own at that point and I couldn't pay for two apartments and I couldn't pay for someone to help me. So I'm living in my twin bed at my parents' house and for two and a half years just waited for the psychotropic drug magic pills that they were told to me to kick in. And, you know, during that two and a half years, it was over 50 different combinations. And I spent 
the entire time, when I say the entire time, 99% of the time staring at the ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to the radio, just dead to the world, uh, being reminded to eat. Um, the other 1% was spent going to the doctors, right? Once every four or six weeks, new set of, of pill combinations. And then like new supplements, try knack and all these other things you know, you've got, and every doctor was like, you've got melancholic depression. You've got anodonic depression. You've got ADHD, ADD, PTSD, OCD. And like every specialist had a different reason for why, what was wrong with me, what, you know, fit the DSM model that they, you know, had studied and, and what they knew most about. Right. And the, with the brain being complicated, there's, there's certainly ways to be able to take anyone's symptoms and fit them in those boxes. And so None of those worked. I was then told to try TMS therapy where they shoot electromagnetic waves into your brain. Um, something where you mentioned Kevin Hines before he and I have a lot of conversations is um, 23 sessions in uh, 23 days in a row of getting this treatment. They're hitting an area in your brain called the cingulate and they're trying to wake up the neurons in your brain. Right. And the cingulate is an area that is responsible for repetitive thought. And so if they're targeting sometimes the wrong area or they're going broader with it, this is what my doctors think now. I remember waking up one morning and I had suicidal ideations for the first time in my life. Meanwhile, nothing situationally bad had happened in the two and a half years prior. I didn't lose a loved one. There wasn't a bad breakup. No pet passed away. We didn't move. And so, you know, I'm looking at this bottle of pills on my counter and the only thought going through my head is swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle, swallow up. And I'm sitting on my hands, like literally like this, stopping myself from lunging at the bottle because I can't stop that thought from going on. And so I, you know, side tangent to this whole story, we could certainly dive into is I, I find the topic of suicide, suicidal ideations fascinating because I think they're more preventable than the suicidologists out there would have us believe mm -hmm. that they're error messages that arise from a buildup of stress and trauma over time that take our thoughts down a different track that if we can tell people what to expect when those thoughts start to develop instead of freaking out because we're feeling them for the first time or in a major way for the first time, which then just makes the thoughts that much stronger and makes us almost incapable of fighting them off. Well, if we had a proactive plan in place, say, okay, I recognize that for what Heidi or Haley told me when I, um, you know, when, when she spoke at my event, now all of a sudden we're giving the people tools to know what to expect anyway. So tangent to the whole thing. Um, so I, I go to a psych ward, um, you know, uh, which is, you know, it's just, you say it now, like who gives a shit? You're just, oh, I was in a psych ward. Um, <laughs> And I get trans, I, I don't, I don't ever mention the name because I had a pretty awful, awful experience, but it was the top treatment facility center, so to speak, in, in the Northeast. And I get transferred to this, you know, campus that they have, and there's 30 of us on the psych ward floor. And I go and meet with the attending psychiatrist and she looks at my chart and I'm looking at her top doctor plaque, plaques on the wall. And she's like, Eric, you've tried everything there is your last resort is to do shock therapy. And, you know, yeah, like the way that your eyes are reacting what, what scared me was not hearing shock therapy, even though a lot of people are like, what the hell? You got your brain shocked. Like what scared me was hearing last resort, right? Because, yeah. you know, the, 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 the facetious joke I tell is I'll go outside to like the pile of horse manure in the streets of New York City and eat 10 scoops of manure a day if it means that my brain's going to heal. So I'll do anything. And now this doctor's telling me this is your last resort, right? Oh so yeah. without any, you know, this is now, if you want some historical perspective, this is 2017. So you know, I started the crash in 2015, you know, in 2017, people still weren't talking about these things. So 
I didn't have family members or friends. Hey, when you were told to get your brain shocked, did you do it or not? Right? Like there, that just wasn't a question being asked. And, and even still to this day, it's not. So at, you know, w- without any better judgment or any better direction, I, I had the um, shock therapy, 12 sessions over five weeks. We could go into a whole nother detail about how miserable that part is, but I left the hospital feeling no better than I had the two and a half years prior thinking my life is over. Cause this woman told me this is your last resort. Right. And that's where the story starts to turn in, in a good way. I meet a woman who practices integrative psychology and I had never done, you know, any work in what is called the integrative space. I'd know what the hell the term integrative even meant. And she's the first doctor. I mentioned all the other ones asking me, what are your symptoms based on your symptoms? Here's your diagnosis based on your diagnosis. Here's the med we're going to give you. She didn't ask any of that in that order. She's like, tell me about your life. Like, you know, just to get to know you first uh, session, not like a psychoanalyzation. And when someone asks you that, especially when you've been struggling with memories, you just try and go back to your earliest memories. So the cadence there is that, um, or I should say that the chronology there is that um, I just started telling her about my life with my two brothers. I have an older brother and a younger brother. Okay. Tell me about your older brother from the time I was eight years old. And then like, again, I, I didn't plan this out. This is just the way it came out of my mouth. He was 12. I was eight. He breaks his femur bone in a sporting accident. And this, your femur bone is the largest bone in your body, literally cracks in half is in a body cast for a year and then homeschooled mm-hmm. heals from that and gets diagnosed with ALL a month after healing from, from the femur. Um, ALL is children form leukemia. So five years back in the late eighties of chemo and radiation, but goes into remission, which is a miracle for our family. Everyone's celebrating a month later. Speaking of hockey, he's on his way to an Islander game with his friends or in a Jeep Wrangler open top, open back, no seatbelts car loses control. He flies out of the car, lands on his head, cracks his head open, loses partial vision, his eyes in ICU for a month heals from that goes to college and um, is feeling a pain in his knee. They do all these testing, his cancer's return now. Um, and they have to give him a much stronger chemo regimen, which is great for knocking the cancerous cells out when it's a stronger regimen, but it also unfortunately does a ha- wreaks havoc on your, your healthy cells. So his body starts breaking down from it, you know, joints all messed up and hair loss, obviously, which is common with chemo, but this really was affecting him. And he developed 105 fever goes to the hospital in, in what's called septic shock, where the organs are attacking themselves, which makes him fall into a coma. So we all get to the hospital. The neurologist is telling us they don't know if he's ever going to wake from the coma. And if he does, if he's ever going to have any brain activity. That goes on for three months where we're just coming to the hospital day in, day out. We don't know. The machine's just breathing for him. Um, miraculously wakes. Funny part of the story is he asks if the Yankees won the World Series. Um, I don't know how he remembered that, that he missed that. Um, but his kidneys fail from the rigor of the septic shock, um, has to go on dialysis. My, my, we, we all get tested to see who's the closest match. My father is donates a kidney to him. That all finally ends. I get my first job at the NBA out of school and three of my close friends, me talk about just the freak show of this happening 22 and 23 years old at the time, all pass away of heart conditions. Like one running on a treadmill at six in the morning, his wife, six weeks pregnant. Right. So like, you know, the, what I just shared with you there was what I shared with her at the time that happened for me between the ages of eight and 23, I'm in her office at 35. And, you know, why would I be making the connection that any of those things had anything to do with how I'm feeling right now in her office after I've been laying in bed for two and a half years, because during that two and a half year period, I'm relying on what I learned in school, which is that 
depression means sadness is in a genetic disorder. <laughs> you know, anxiety means nervousness and is a genetic disorder. Um, and that PTSD only happens to service men and women. And, you know, they have to find the right set of magic pills that are going to bop my genetic brain that's not working into place. I didn't know it had anything to do. So her, her, her question to me is, Eric, what, what else went on in your life that impacted your mental health that I need to know about? And I just, you know, that's kind of the first impetus when you ask, you know, what I do now. It's a long introduction, I guess. But um, it was the first time I ever took a step back. and I was like, what else impacted my mental health? These things didn't happen to me. I wasn't in the car when my brother flew out. I wasn't on the treadmill when my friend collapsed. And she's like, no, no, no. You had a front row seat for all this. So I said, okay, well, if I had a front row seat and that's all it takes, it could be anything that happens to your friends, your family members. It doesn't have to happen to you directly. Then forget about me, 35-year-old man sitting here. Let's talk about the 15-year-old kid, the average 15-year-old kid watches their parents fight and have a divorce, watches their parents uh, lose their job and then potentially lose the house, watches their two best friends get into a bad fight and, and the friendship dissolve, watch their best friend, you know, break up with their significant other and feel crushed, watches their best friend getting bullied on the schoolyard or sees them being verbally abused by an adult or hears about them being sexually abused or watches them go through the sickness of a loved one or a loss of a loved one. And I'm just like rattling these things off one after the other as I'm talking to her, I'm like, I don't know a 15 year old who hasn't been through one summer, many of those things by that age alone, if sitting in a front row seat, watching other people go through shit impacts our mental health, that means there's not a person on this planet whose mental health hasn't been impacted. And, you know, she, you know, what may seem a little more mainstream right now to, to those of us who are talking in this space, right? At the time, she's like, Eric, I'm an integrative practitioner. I haven't told you what integrative meant, but it's connection between the mind and the body and what we see and what we experience. And she starts telling me about Bessel van der Kolk and reading The Body Keeps Score and all this stuff about how what we experience, our body holds on to. So she sends me to this weekend breathing course where I show up and I'm the only man. I'm the only one under 40. I'm the only one born in this country. <laughs> so it's me and eight Indian women and nine yoga mats. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and I'm just, you know, I feel like a fish out of water, but I love learning the science behind why things work mm, yeah. because I, here's the, one of the biggest bullshits in this space right now is I'll, I'll leave the names of the companies or the apps out of it. It's like do meditation and feel happier you know, do breathing practices and get rid of stress. Okay. How? Because that's not going to make people stay with things unless on day two, they're feeling better. You yeah. need to describe to people the science of how these things are working. So same way when they go to the gym, we've learned, okay, you break down muscle fibers, the proteins build back stronger and bigger, and therefore you get more caught or mass or whatever you're looking for, or you break down fat cells because you do more work than you, than calories you take in. Like we need to explain these things to people, right? And so fortunately, I had a really good instructor. And, I, and I, again, I won't go into too much detail, but is explaining to me the vagus nerve in the neck and that there's two branches and that because we see what we do out in life, we change the way that we breathe when difficult experiences happen, right? Going back to like caveman days when the tiger or the woolly mammoth came to the, the fire pit, everyone was like, oh, right? And then, and then you change the way you breathe and you run away from it or you fight it. Well, similar thing here, but it, we don't have tigers or woolly mammoths coming to our fire pit, but we have car accidents happening in front of us and people in our lives getting sick and worrying about deadlines. So we're stopping the way that we would 
quote, normally breathe. And you do that enough to your central nervous system over time, it creates these neurobiological changes that now I can buy into the concept of breathing and breathing can now, if I do that, oh, wow, I can start to normalize my central nervous system and the way that my brain and my body talk to one another, right? And, and I don't have to freak out every time I get a call on the phone thinking something bad's going to happen and there's bad news being delivered, right? So I do this practice with them, you know, for three days and I don't feel any better, not surprisingly, because who feels better in three days, but I stick with it. And they asked me, and I remember to do 40 days. And on day 30, I woke up and it was, it was like a miracle. I looked at the controller next to me in my bed and I wanted to turn the TV on. That was like the first sign of any type of interest in anything I'd had in that two and a half years. Wow. And then looked at the kitchen and wanted scrambled eggs for breakfast, right? Like two things that we take for granted every single day, but they felt like miracles to me that they came back. Um, so I'll, I'll try to lay in the land the plane with this is, is I share my story on LinkedIn of all places. Cause we talked earlier about, you know, uh, social media on uh, Instagram and Twitter. I didn't have Twitter and Instagram. I didn't know how the hell to share and any of that stuff. And the other funny thing is my friends who are in digital marketing. They're like, dude, you've been dead to the world for the last two and a half years. People use video and short form right now. <laughs> like I had, I didn't know anything that had gone on in pop culture and anything. Right. Because uh, I just wasn't paying attention. And so I'm a writer. You see myself more than I am like, you know, getting on and, Oh, look at me, selfie stuff like that. I'm just not that, that way. So I wrote my story and I thought what would help people is the details of the shit that I just shared with you, my brother and my friends. Well, it gets read over 150,000 times between Facebook and LinkedIn. Wow. And I had over 400 calls come in from as far as China. And I was talking about the, the impetuses for form this organization. The second big thing for me was no one shared a disorder label with me. And that might sound like hyperbolic. No one was saying, Eric, you were ultimately diagnosed with PTSD. I have PTSD also. Or Eric, I have bipolar. It's different than PTSD in this way. Instead, everyone was sharing a lived experience. Like I lost a child to SIDS five years ago and I've never been the same. My life's been crushed. Or I'm a married mother, two beautiful kids. I love my husband. He's my soulmate. But I broke up with my college boyfriend 10 years ago. And that knot in my stomach when I had to make that decision hasn't ever left me because I knew I was crushing his life and, you know, changing the course of where his life would go. And I've never been able to get that out of my system. Wow. And what that helped me realize in this space, and this is where I think we can, you know, start to converse about what we're seeing is like, I went to the largest nonprofit websites in our country. Again, don't need to name them, but I, I was like, okay, I have relationships with athletes and people with platforms. If anyone is sharing the mental health message in this way that it started to become clear to me about lived experiences, five and five, everyone faces challenges of mental health across a continuum. I'll, I have no ego in this. I'll give them my sports context, help them magnify and I'll go back and work at sports, right? Like it wasn't like I had this burning desire. I have to do something in mental health. There was a, a lot of fun in helping people. And I wanted to keep doing that. But I went to these websites and, and the, the three things that I saw that were consistent across all them that I think are well-intentioned, but I think still to this day, four years later now, move us further away from understanding this topic as a society. First is that they all lead with the stat one in five people are mentally ill. And what that does is it creates a binary topic of mm -hmm. there's, you know, the mentally ill, sick people, and that's what mental health is. And then there's the healthy, fine, normal, okay people who don't have to worry about mental health. Well, if you could find me a person on this planet who's healthy, fine, normal, and okay, all of those things packaged in one, I'd love to meet that person because they don't <laughs> exist, too. right? 
so 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 that's challenge number one then challenge number two this one's a little more controversial because when i especially when i talk to advocates in this space they're like oh i never thought about it that way so you could feel free to completely disagree with me is all the campaigns were uh mirror images of each other so the normalization campaigns to try and get people to talk were an action word followed by stigma so mm. nami started with stop the stigma and then everyone else it was stomp the stigma break the stigma race the stigma well, the term stigma means there's a group of people, human beings, forming opinions and judgments in an unfair way about another group of people. You don't bring people together by being like, we're the group that's telling everyone over there, stop the stigma. Like, I don't know whoever comes up with these campaigns. And it is a great rallying cry for the affected, quote unquote, who live in that one in five that they think is a separate bubble. But all it does is tell the, quote, other people who think they're healthy and okay, you're wrong for doing what you do. You need to stop doing it. And I don't think we have to look any further than like every social topic on our planet that when you tell people you're wrong, I'm right, that makes them dig their heels in more and not come to your mm -hmm. side and not see the similarities, right? So that was the second thing. And then the third thing was the way that celebrity stories were shared on all these websites. It was like, you know, before the age of social media, it was Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan were the two big stories. Fortunately, the Britney Spears one's coming around full circle now. But at the time, it was like, oh, Britney Spears is part of our one in five group. So you're not alone. She's got depression. Lindsay Lohan's part of our one in five group. You're not alone. She's got anxiety. And then they would link to an Us Weekly or People magazine article. And it'd be like, Britney Spears has depression, shaves her head. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety, dresses like a hot mask, can't put lipstick on the right way. So you add these three things up that people are reading about mental health on an everyday basis from the sources that are supposed to be helping to normalize the conversation. And it's one in five people. Let's stop stigmatizing that group of one in five. And you, if you're in the one in five, you run off basketball courts and panic attacks, say crazy things about your family. If you're Kanye West or shave your head, if you're Britney Spears, do you understand now why people don't take mental health seriously? Even now, this many years later, when quote, there's more and more talk about it. So anyway, that was the impetus behind forming same here, which is we think of almost the opposite of stop the stigma. What we're saying is it's five and five. It's all of us because every single one of us has a story and we break down stigma way quicker by a room of us all looking different, being different ages, different, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, all saying same here. Here's the shit I've been through in life. That breaks down stigma way more than ever saying the term stop the stigma ever will. In fact, I'd say it does the opposite again of what stop the stigma does. So, yeah, that's been like the last three years now. And it's been a combination of, you know, what you've seen on social media is where you start. But then mm -hmm. what do you actually do boots on the ground is we have five areas of programming from K through 12, the college to offices to servicemen and women of first responders and then sports teams and leagues. And we were set up in a structured way, kind of like a matrix. So we've got these different advocacy alliances. So hate the term, but celebrity alliance with the athletes, a doctor's alliance with integrative practitioners, um, what we call a star alliance, which is stress and trauma, active release and rewiring. So all the people who champion like yoga, meditation, mindfulness, breathing practices, havening, tapping, all that. And then with those alliances, we then have these different programs. So we plug each of the different alliance members into the programs that we have. So, okay, we're going to JP Morgan Chase. Who's the right fit for that? We're going to the Golden State Warriors. Who's the right fit for that based on what they're looking for? And it allows us to be nimble, I guess, would be the best way to describe it, to give, you know, education 
and also ch a change in, in culture uh, to each of the places we go. So sorry, I told you I was going to give you the cliff notes and then I went much longer. So I apologize about that. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. This is, no, this is great. Eric, you have been saying things that I have been literally thinking about for so long, especially the stigma thing that <laughs> has driven me crazy because like, so with my organization, the gray matters, something that I did when I was in college, because I was hearing, you know, it's crazy that you said in 2017, we weren't even talking about this. And I, when I heard that, I was like, really? And then I thought about it in my life. And I'm like, actually, yeah, because 2018 was when I started my movement, the gray matters. And and on college campus, we were not talking about mental health, which not at all. It, it, and I'll I'll piggyback on your comment there, just so like how it's crystallized my mind about the timing of it. So my crash happens, you know, not that I'm not always crashing, right? We're always a work in progress, but yeah. from from beginning of 2015 to the middle of 2017. So when I quote came out of it, and I I was going to share the story, the only person Brandon Marshall in the sports world had like had cameras in his face about um, borderline personality disorder, which mm -hmm. is a very specific thing. Um, but before he, it became a more controversial Royals topic, Prince Harry had shared and he did it in a beautiful way. Like he was very vulnerable. He was he was sharing about therapists that he'd been to. But the biggest thing to me was he shared the loss of his mother. He wasn't just like, I have this thing called depression. Therefore, you need to talk to someone. He was like, I lost my mom. That was really hard to do, especially in front of a lot of people, right? Yeah. So there was no one out there really that was talking about the vulnerabilities of what they've been through other than him. Meanwhile, UK is at a 30-year high in suicides the year after he shared his story. So I'm like, something's not right here with the messages. And so the, the, the timing of it, this will just line up with you and being in school. Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan came out with their story like two or three months after I had. Now, obviously, I'm not an NBA basketball player, right? I don't have the following that they have on social media. I'm a sports executive, right? So, like, I came out with my story before them, and I only bring up the chronology of that because had they come out with it earlier, maybe, like, it wouldn't have been a bit as big a deal when I came out, and it wouldn't have been read that much, right? So, like, you think of the serendipity of timing of things, people were probably like, holy shit, guy who's, you know, worked in a C-level at a sports organization is sharing this stuff. Like, we, we never hear this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So really, before, like, 2018 was that first movement of athletes kind of holding hands together and being like, we're going to put it out there. And then, you know, it's it's grown since then. But I, you know, and I'm sorry to cut you off because I want to hear the rest of what you had to say is I, I still think what we're sharing is very much surface level. And it's mm -hmm. like, this person, this disorder gets this medication. This person, this disorder goes to talk therapy and that's it. Yeah. So how are you going to get the four and fives to friggin' come over and understand that this topic is for them if that's the only message that's coming from the celebrities? Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh, yes. And, and, and back to what you were saying too, like it's just weird to think that in the few years that you know we've had, right? Like we have come far but I don't think we are even close to where we should be. Like you said, you know, even on my college campus, I think what made my organization stand out was one day we just put up all these posters of students' faces with slogans. And some of the slogans, you know, a lot of them pertain to anxiety, depression, like, you know, the labels, but also there were people on there who just put, you know, don't let stress consume you 
or just keep swimming, just random things. And yep. some people were specific situations that they'd been through and it caught people's attention because it was like, oh, I've been through that. Or, you know, and that's when I realized it was the shift for me that it's not just about saying I have depression or I have anxiety or, you know, the typical labels. It's about who are you as a, as a whole and what's your story? You know, we all have a story. We all have mental health. So I, I love that you pointed that out because it's true. I think in the mental health conversation today, we get so pigeonholed just in talking about mental illness itself. And it's not just about that. It's about so much more. We're talking about brain health. If you have a brain, you've experienced a mental health problem at some point. And you would think like coming out of the pandemic period that that idea would be pretty universal now, right? Which it's gotten better because of it. But I still think that people are like, oh, that was a specific situational thing. So I'll give you some like very pointed comments that have come out even over the pandemic. So like Dak, you know, sports obviously is the world that I live a lot in. So I, I see a lot of the, the talking heads there. So Dak Prescott is a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, very publicly comes out with his depression that he's faced. And there was a guy, Skip Bayless, who's a big time talking head in sports. And he goes, you didn't have real depression. You had pandemic depression, right? And it's like he and he he was given a chance to clear up what he had to say the next day. Like people were all over him because he's got a big time show. And he goes, you know, look, I feel bad for people who have clinical depression. I feel really bad for them, for people who just have pandemic depression because they're down from this period of time. And you're like, dude, you don't understand the brain. You don't understand the neurobiology like you can't as a talking head. You can opine on if a quarterback made the right throw or not and made the right decision in the end zone, like you can't upon on medical things. You don't have, you know, any type of uh, uh, background in. And, and I'll tell you what was cool was there were some colleagues of his that kind of came to Dak Prescott's defense and, and, you know, said, look, like when I lost my mom in, you know, 2004, that crushed me. Like, why is that any different than living through a pandemic? Like, you know, what happens to us in our lives when we face these challenging situations? So I think there is a little bit more chatter. But, you know, the the like what I see with with corporate partners and I, I try not on these things to like bring up the partner or the the, the athlete or the celebrity, but it's like the second someone is willing to share something, it, it's this, it's this ecosystem of them that work together because they have this formula that get the, gets the clicks. Mm. So the actually I can use one that does it the right way, but that the media messed up purposely. So Hayden Hurst is a, the tight end for the Atlanta Falcons. Been very open about his suicide attempts um, when he was in college and the challenges he's faced since, but he wrote, you know, I shouldn't say wrote, he sat with the Baltimore Sun when he was with the Ravens before he got traded to Atlanta. And they came out with an article that was very aptly titled, you know, Hayden Hurst has struggled with his mental health, wants to use his story to help others, right? Like that was the, I, I, I can't give you if that was exactly it, but that was roughly what it was. Mm -hmm. TMZ, like 30 seconds later says, NFL player cuts, cuts wrists in college, right? Oh my gosh. Right. Takes just like a piece of what they read in this other article that Baltimore Sun did. And now they, right. So what the media wow. does is they take the disorder label and the erratic behavior next to the celebrity name and, it, and how many people read beyond headlines nowadays. Mm -hmm. So all it's doing when we say we're having more people talking, it's reinforcing. 
and you know, like Naomi Osaka is getting a lot of credit right now. And, and I'm not saying she handled the situation perfectly. We could we could do a whole nother show about that. But what she's done since, which I'm very proud of, is she's said to the powers that be, I, I guess you can say this when you already have 50 million in endorsements, so you could turn some away. But she said, I'm not yet ready to be the poster child for mental health because I have a lot of my own healing to do. That is a very mature statement to make because oh, yeah. you know that calm and, and better help and talk space would have been lining up to be like, Hey, how much do we have to pay you to be the, the, the face of this campaign that we have? And then again, it goes to Naomi had anxiety, couldn't talk to the press. You need to talk to someone you go because she would go right. Mm. That's not what mental health is. Yeah, no. And I think we have as a society gotten into a really dangerous territory of making celebrities the poster children for mental health to me that is just completely unfair and we've seen it i mean there have been plenty of celebrities who have been the the poster child of mental health advocacy who have come out later and said i was never ready for that and it actually was a detriment to me i mean demi lovato is one that i think of right away um and so it it's crazy. I, I just don't know why we do these things as a society. We think it's helpful. And then sometimes it's, we don't well, think we, about the person. We want, we want to re- like, here's, here's the paradigm shift. We like as humans, we're wired to want to relate to other people. So we hear something and we're like, Oh, that. And then we see like Britney Spears and like, she's our age, right. Or Demi Lovato and she's our age. And Oh, I've always wanted to be a singer. Right. Mm. So think about the way that your mind segments things and it puts them into buckets, right? And it's like, my age looks like me, has the same interest than I have. I can follow that person. And if they're going through that, I can talk about that as well. And, and what we're, we're, I'm trying to do with the concept of same here is like the commonality of the human experience is that there's a human experience mm. and that we all face a challenge. Because if you start to segment it into hey, I can only relate to Britney Spears because I'm the same age as her and I'm a female and I like singing. Well, guess what? Like, that's only helping that segment of people who who see themselves in that way. I look at a world as, as, okay, I might have only four close friends in my life, friends and family, right? You might have only five close friends and family in your life. And if you look at the average numbers, it's about three and a half people like that people feel close to, unfortunately, that they would reveal something deep to. So here's the question. If you have to have the same disorder as someone else for them to be able to relate to you, and you only have three and a half people on average in your life that you're close with, well, if you've been diagnosed with depression and they've been diagnosed with ADD, how do you open up? You don't feel comfortable opening up or taking a next step. Let's even say when we go, oh, they lost their parent. I lost my parent. Okay, that's one-to-one. But now they lost their parent and I lost my cousin. No, I can't talk to them because they don't have the same experience that I had because we lost two different types of people in my life. That's insanity Mm -hmm. because then we're not there to help each other. And why do we have suicide rates the way that we do is because there's not enough people to hold our hands, right? So search for the similarities, which is the trauma in the challenge that we face and the symptoms that we feel and how difficult it is on it, on us. I, I look, I'd rather open up to the person who's this comforting person that I have around in my life who's able to say, I don't know that experience exactly, but what you're describing resonates with me. And here's how it does resonate with me. And let's talk about the similarities of it. And now 
you don't feel isolated. You don't feel alone. You feel like you've got someone that you can handhold with. And I just, I think, you know, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but this segmenting and bucketing is really what I think holds our society back so much. Agreed. And I was even talking to someone the other day, you know, I just said to them, I really want you on my podcast. And this person looked at me like I was crazy. And, you know, to your point, we're all a little crazy, right? But this person literally said to me, I'm not qualified for that. I don't have a mental health issue, you know? And I just thought to myself, I'm like, okay, let's, let's talk a little bit deeper. And then I found out this person actually lost someone very close in their life to alcoholism. And I was like, okay, so you, let's say, you know, you don't, quote unquote, have a mental health issue, like a label, like depression or anxiety or whatever. But you've, like you said, Eric, you've sat firsthand, you've seen it, you've been in the front row of of someone who's experienced that trauma. And you've experienced the trauma yourself of, of that loss. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about that loss, you know, and then they were like, Oh, okay, now I understand. So it's, it's crazy to me that we, like you said, we, we segment things so strictly, because all of us can talk about this. We all have a brain. We've all experienced some kind of hardship. I call it the suck. We've all experienced it at some point. Let's just talk about it. That's the only way we're going to relate to each other. Oh, and I, look, there's powers that be also that sell products and services that it's productive for them to keep us in those buckets, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. if you don't know anyone else who's been through what this is, right? Remember what I was describing with the, you know, shock therapy, well, then who can you connect to? So you have to take this thing that they're selling or this thing that they're providing you as a service because you don't have any other options, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a, everything that you do on an everyday basis, everything Kevin does, everything I do, everything in this space does, it's a reprogramming of people in a way that the weirdest thing about it is because those powers that be don't want this message out there in this way because it stops products and services from being sold. We're fighting an uphill battle against the downer pressure of what the marketing message is that they're receiving, right? So that's why the reaction that you got from that person that you got to open up that way when they were like, whoa, that's mental health. It shouldn't be that big of like a wow moment for them, but it is because of how much we've been conditioned to think with these blinders on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And something that you talked about earlier in your story that kind of really was interesting to me was you said you were misdiagnosed, correct? Look, I mean, so my ultimate diagnosis was CPTSD, right? Like one, find me a person on this planet who doesn't have, let's just call it PTS, not even PTSD, right? In some, some shape or form. But yeah, like what I was saying I was misdiagnosed is because like, do you know a person who hasn't sat and obsessively thought about something over and over again in their life or doesn't like do weird things like jump over cracks on a sidewalk when they're walking just because it feels better than stepping on the cracks or like, and I know there's different levels and I'm not trying to downplay the person who like can't get out of the kitchen sink because they have to keep washing their hands and they get scaly hands from doing it. Like, yes, there's different levels of everything, but the brain I believe what happens from working with these doctors who now explain the neurobiology to me is there's changes to the vagal tone. There's inflammation in our cells throughout our whole body. Our hormones start getting released in different levels. If that happens, it's going to manifest itself then in some underlying genetic predispositions that we have. That is this mishmash conglomerate of little bit of inability to focus, cognitive fog, overthinking of situations like, okay, 
that can fit into all these different categories. And I'm not like people who listen to this and be like, Eric, there is a strict OCD type of diagnosis. There is, but the, also I'd like to meet the person who has strict OCD and has nothing else that's on the DSM five. Cause I've never fucking met a person like that either. Right. Yep. So it's this, it, you know, it's this art meets science thing. And I think what we're doing by pathologizing everything is we're breaking people up into the buckets more. So hopefully that answers your question is that I don't know if I was misdiagnosed as much as I was given the diagnosis that checked the box for everything that my brain sounded like it was, you know, giving out at that point. So if that's the case, then instead they should have just thrown the book at me and been like, yeah, you have all these, don't worry about coming to each of us individually. We just got to try and fix you overall. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that because, you know, I think the overall approach is so important because I, again, you know, I think when sometimes people get diagnosed with, you know, for my instance, when I was diagnosed with bipolar depression, you know, I was Googling it and searching, what can I do? What can I do? And I got these lists of solutions and I started doing all of them and nothing was working. And it wasn't until I started therapy, honestly, within the past year that my therapist sat me down and said, let's look at the surrounding areas, you know, of your life rather than let's not just look at the bipolar depression. Let's look at everything else. And then it was like, holy shit, I have a lot of trauma and things that have happened in my life that I haven't overcome or even like started diving into. So it's, it's difficult because like you said, the, the marketing messages tell you there's this one size fits all. And it's just not, that's just not how mental well, think, think about what you just described with like bipolar depression. Think of it in waves, right? We think of, um, you know, low periods, high periods, manic periods, depressed periods. And mm-hmm. so if you start working on the trauma of it, the length of those waves starts to shrink, right? So yeah. you're feeling less of the symptomatology, less of the, the fluctuation. Okay. Well, a person who has OCD has waves also. The person who has, you know, high anxiety has waves also by mm-hmm. taking away the trauma and taking away the, the, the way in which it's affecting the neurobiology, you're shrinking the fluctuation and symptoms. So everyone has the opportunity to start to feel better, whether we're this thing called cured ever. I don't believe because you and I could walk down the street at eight years old, trip, twist our ankle. Our ligaments are never going to be the same in that ankle. So technically we're never fully physically healthy from that point moving forward. We eat eggs and there's cholesterol in eggs or cheese or whatever the newest thing is that they believe, you know, uh, contributes to the cholesterol. We don't have completely clear arteries. We're all works in progress in every aspect of our physical mental body. So, you know, just to, to look at it that way and say, I can keep working on it. I can keep shrinking the distance of the, of how those ways fluctuate. And you know what? It's manageable for me and I can enjoy life so that those fluctuations don't take away the ability to enjoy. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Cause honestly, I think it was Kevin Hines actually, I think it was in his documentary. Um, he said at one point, you know, the bipolar disorder never went away. It was the fact that I had a support system. I had all these things integrated into my life that was helping me stay afloat. You know, it never went away. It just things necessarily didn't get better, but I got better. And I think it's, it's hard to recognize that at times, especially when you're so deep into trauma or things that are going on in your life to recognize that it can get better, right? It's just, you got to take the steps, um, whatever those steps look like for you. And so um, a question I have for you, Eric, is so when you were going through all of these intensive therapies and, and just even in your own journey, like what was helpful for you? At the time of the journey, I'll tell you that there wasn't much helpful, which is going to be a ridiculous comment, right? Because 
stagnation breeds stagnation. So when we're sick, when we're younger and we have strep throat or bronchitis, pneumonia, we lay in a bed because it feels right to our brain that we're supposed to be laying down because rest is supposed to be what starts to heal us and get us better along with this beautiful pill that we do take called an antibiotic that knocks out the, the messy stuff that's in our system. When you're feeling depressed, anxious, PTSD, OCD, all these things, your brain is exhausted. So your body feels exhausted, right? You're run down. You have less energy. You have less, if you want to use Eastern medicine, less chi in your system, right? So you're laying there waiting for the sleep to get you better. So for that two and a half years, all I was doing was digging myself into a deeper and deeper hole because I'm thinking, yeah, I can't think of anything right now, but at least if I'm sleeping and at least if I'm tuning the world out, I'm not taxing my brain to work that hard. And, you know, that just got me to a worse and worse spot. So looking back on it now, that being said, now you're asking the question, like I was living at home. My father would be like, come for a walk with me. I was like, that's the last thing I want to do right now. He's like, just come for a walk with me. I think those are the things that kept me alive, right? Is like yeah. being forced by someone, you know, like even a friend or a family member saying to you, your, your spine needs to twist because there's too much energy caught in your system. Do a stretch where your knees are to one side and your head and your other arm are to the other side and then switch, right? You know, roll your legs back and forth and your knees and your chest, like little things like that to get motion going is so important because if you just lay there and wait for something to kick in and work for you, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. There's so many things that you've talked about that I honestly, I just want to talk about for hours because these are all things that I have been thinking about, especially in the mental health conversation, um, just just in terms of overall well-being and and sharing each other's stories and listening to each other. And um, yeah, it's just interesting. So another question that I've been thinking about was, um, you know, what do you think? I know we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but you're another advocate that I highly respect. And so what do you think is the largest obstacle that we're facing today with the mental health conversation, even other advocates who are out here? What's, what's something that you see a lot or just something that, you know, we need to change. All right. So on a, on a, I always think like macro micro, like this guy that we work with Chucky calls it the press box view versus the line of scrimmage view. You're either up here or you're, you know, in the trenches. So yeah. from a press box view perspective, there's a Harvard business review article that came out. Um, I think it was June after the pandemic, only 31% of companies think that uh, prioritization of mental health services for their employees has become more important to their organization. Okay. That means 69% don't think that after they just saw everyone in their office go through the biggest, you know, ridiculousness, whether you are a strong believer in COVID, like I don't try to get political and stuff like whatever your reason is you, your routine was completely uplifted. And, and, and now you're saying okay, only 31% of company. So we live in offices. That's what we do, right? Like, so if our leaders don't believe this, that's an issue, right? So the mass messaging of what mental health is, is still not there. Yeah. Then the, the, the next piece of that is in terms of holding hands and look, this is, this, this is me diving a little bit into the skepticism, you know, maybe conspiracy or theory part of it, but I, you know, I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist, but like the independent advocates like you and I and Kevin and people like that, like 
we just go and we tell our stories. It's about lived experience. We want people to connect. We want people to share. We want people to, to say they go through things also come up, open up to us so that they can open up to each other. And we've changed the dynamic in those rooms. Yep. If the incessant focus from the larger organizations out there is a different message than ours, where the focus is on disorder specifically, there's no consistent message coming from the different advocates because you've yep. got some advocates who say it looks at it this way and you've got some large organizations who say no you got to go to this doctor to get this diagnosis to know what pill to take that's not going to get people to open up right so we're like chipping away at these things as advocates going you know event to event or doing zoom to zoom like this and it's nice that we're educating people in that way and you know hey take a step back look at this differently but until we can get those larger organizations to, um, you know, and, and where I say the skepticism comes in is there's a lot of funding that comes from the pharmaceutical companies for them. And so to keep this narrative of there's a thick line between sick and healthy, between disorder and no disorder, what happens when you're on the other line of disorder? You need their magic pills and their services in order to be healed. Yeah. Are they going to go away completely from what their messages of where they're getting funding? I don't know. You know, like I'm not in those rooms enough. I, I throw jabs here and there without, you know, um, putting too many names out there because it sickens me to watch. But I, I also like, you know, I'll say this because I, I, I'm getting more aggressive with this. There's no question in my mind because I, I look at the difference of activities when you have a business account on the social media channels. I don't give a shit about likes. Like I give a shit about views. Views to me matter because I want to know how many people I can affect by it being put in their feed. Mm -hmm. If I say something like Olympian, you know, incredible story, uh, you know, uh, attempted suicide three years ago and now goes on to, you know, uh, have an incredible um, uh, event in, in the track and field. It goes like wildfire. Why? Because I said the magic words for them, Olympian and suicide. Yep. If I say something like, we all face similar challenges. Let's think about this scenario where, right? This particular event happens in life. How common that is to each of us. How, you know, what I was sharing with you before. Someone lost their father, but then they lost their cousin and then they lost, you know, their aunt. How, how much we can actually share. It gets killed. Like, no, no pun intended, sadly. But like, they do not show it. To, and I'm talking about like one-tenth the amount of reach. So when I try and bring people together, which is the core of our message, they don't let it out there. And they know we have relationships with the Darren Ravels of the world and people who have 2 million followers. And it, I even see when they, because I post it like on a Twitter and then they retweet it. The difference between those two types of messages that I shared, it's a tenfold difference. So for Darren, who, you know, when he retweets something that it's just kind of the headline grabber mm -hmm. and it's just trying to normalize that everyone goes through something. Um, 150,000 views on Twitter. Wow. If it's something on the collective that I share, 15,000 views. And it's like clockwork. So like people can say, oh, there's no one behind the wall there. It's it's just an algorithm that you're 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 just not hitting. No, that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's a there's a message there that helps them that that hurts us. And when I say us, we're not selling anything, we're selling people hope and and they're not letting it out there. So that's a big, a big obstacle. That is huge. I'm not going to lie because uh, I also work with this other organization called Foster's Voice Suicide Awareness. And one of our sayings is let's change the world together. And I will tell you, we used to get thousands of shares on our posts. And we read an article somewhere around 
a year, year and a half ago, right around when all the COVID stuff was happening, that they Facebook changed their algorithm. And now we barely can get likes on any of our posts, you know, anything that has to do with collective healing or anything like that. It's we get one or two if we're lucky. And we're literally begging our friends and our family to like and comment and share. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel it. I see it too, because it's happening with my organizations as well. So it's, it's bothersome to me because these companies do seem to care outwardly right about the mental health and suicide issue but then it's but like who, who what are you sponsors, actually doing right? but th- this is why this is why they're talking out of both sides of their mouth because their sponsors are the people that benefit off of us being bucketed and not healing yeah. together right back to the you know now i'll use a specific one because it's out there you know michael phelps has depression and suicidal thoughts uses talk space you can heal by using their talk therapist right or calm or, or let's use headspace get 10 percent happier in 10 days guaranteed right Gosh. like now all of a sudden you read that because you're not feeling well and you're like oh i gotta do that right well if the, if there's a message coming from us being like have you sat in a circle with a group of people and started opening up and sharing what you go through and guess what that doesn't sell therapy sessions and that yep. doesn't sell you know meditation app subscriptions that sells you know hope and and con- connectivity and that's not something that they make money off of. So these are not stupid people, right? Like I'm sure you saw the the movie Social Dilemma or oh, whatever God. it was. It's like, you know, yeah. like how much of that is fully real versus not? Okay, I, I, even if a percentage of it is real, like you you and all the 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 anecdotes that you and I just gave should be indication enough that anyone who's listening to this they'd be like, wow, okay, <laughs> this is the suppression is real. Yeah, and it's. Also very sad because I even look at the graphs of the rise of social media and you also look at the graphs of the suicide rate, not only just in America, but globally. And it it, it, it just breaks my heart because I think social media, there are some good things that have come out of it, but at the end of the day, it's it's hurting us. It's hurting, especially well, but the look generation. At the, the tool like social media can do the exact opposite things with the same tool. It can either be the comparison tool, which it currently is right now. That's what gets the most attention, which is Heidi's looking at, or Haley's, I don't know why I keep calling it. Haley's looking at a picture of this attractive girl in this attractive dress. Now she's comparing her. How do I look compared to that person, right? Hopefully you don't mind me giving like a real, you know, X and O's example of what we do. Like it's a human trait to look at someone else and be like, you know, am I going to get as many likes as that or something like that? Or do I look as good as that? Yep. In that, but you take that exact same tool and you say, wait a second, we could all be on the same page talking with each other about the stuff that we go through. So this tool can be used in such an amazing way. But what is allowed in terms of the spreading of that message yep. versus the that dress looks nice is night and day where the numbers are. So when you see the mental health graph go up at the same time, the the um social media graph goes up for usage it's not because it's the only way social media can be used it's because it's what they're prioritizing that gets out there that affects it absolutely and i don't know if you've noticed this just on your page but with the gray matters i've tried to promote a few of the posts about suicide or you know collective healing things like that i've tried to promote it and i've gotten denied almost every single time but then I'll promote wow. something on my personal page that's just something random, like literally just me standing there smiling, and they'll promote it. So I, so I, I are you talking about Instagram or Facebook or any of them? That, that's on Instagram, but I've gotten okay. denied on Facebook as well. 
So I've never p- promoted something on Instagram because I refuse to until what's eventually going to happen is they do what they've done to us on Facebook. All of us, not mm-hmm. just mental health is, oh, wow, you collected 70,000 followers. Guess what? You can't reach more than 1,500 of them without paying us, even though yep. they're your followers that you collected, which is absurd, but fine. Okay, so you play the game. What I've noticed with Facebook is if they can find any reason to put it under what they call violating community guidelines, which is the broadest definition possible of anything, right? Like then they'll deny it. So, you know, there was one where like we were upset with Andrew Yang's comments where he was like, mentally ill people think they have rights. Well, you know who else has rights? We have rights. So he created these binary, yeah, he's running for mayor of New York and in the middle of the debate goes, they have rights to be able to be in the streets and be homeless, but we have rights to walk down the street and not get pushed into subways, right? Like, so he basically like, he took the biggest, you know, uh, uh, you know, misnomer about, you know, the fact that mentally ill people are more likely to be, part, you know, victims of a crime than commit the crime. And he flipped it the other way. And so all we did was share what the comments were and they were, nope, this, this violates it, you know, and they don't even say in it because you talked about politics or something like that. It was just, there's the slightest bit, you know, and they, and they kill it for that reason. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's very frustrating because, you know, they, I, I'll see the ads for, you know, like you've talked about BetterHelp and, and some of the other organizations that I think are probably really trying to do good work, but it's like, I see the Facebook ads and I'm like, oh, okay, they can get an advertising spot, but my organization can't. So well, they, but, but here, okay. I'm going to give you two, two interesting observations from that. One, they're spending millions of dollars. Yep. So you're going to break the rules for them when they have a spend, right? Where you di- talk about the difference between advocacy and being a business. Yep. But the other thing is, because guess what? There's not a lot of suppression happening on some of these larger mental health accounts that are non-advocate accounts. And what I would challenge people to look at is why are they able to get theirs through? Because they're not paying. They're not promoting a ton. But it's because similar to what what is better help and calm? What do they prey on? What does 10% happier in 10 days guaranteed mean? It means you who have depression, this thing where you're sad, this is what you take for that. They're, they're, they're capitalizing on the fact that as a society, we've created the one in five category, right? Not in so many terms. But so now you look at the mental health organizations that are able to get the message out during mental health awareness month. And I'm sorry if you did this, so don't hate me. Like it sounds like I'm caught, but like <laughs> mental health awareness month, these large organizations will be like, these first three days are going to be OCD awareness day. These next five days are going to be PTSD awareness day. And, and it, all it does like, okay, I'm going to tune out the message the whole rest of the month, but because this one talks to me. So those social media channels have no problem when it's quote mental health conversation, as long as it's bucketed in a way that continues to serve what their sponsors best interests are. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it's collective healing, it's natural healing, it's community healing. That's the stuff that they don't like. Yeah, no, that is, you're absolutely right. And it's, uh, it is difficult. And that's why, you know, every year when September rolls around, you know, I'll see all the suicide awareness posts, suicide prevention month. And I'm just like, oh, that's great. But in our world, suicide prevention day is every day. You know, we shouldn't just be doing this just in the month of September or just in the month of May. Why can't we talk about these things every day? So yeah, that's a great point as well. Um, So we've talked about a lot and oh my gosh, I I need to do another episode with you because you have brought up so many points that I want to dive deeper into. 
Um, but, you know, kind of as we're wrapping things up, you've been through a lot, clearly. Um, it, you know, you've shared your experience pretty openly. I'm learning to share mine more openly. But we have a lot of people listening to this podcast who aren't ready to share yet and are working through the things that they're mm -hmm. going through. So what's the best advice that you could give to someone who's in the suck and is trying to make it through? Is perspective is the greatest uh, superpower every human being is given the capacity to obtain. And what do I mean by that is, okay, so I'll, I always use my own personal experience. So that way I'm like painting the picture so someone else can say, okay, in my experience, I can understand putting myself in those shoes and seeing it. So um, when I was in my miserable state and maybe not ready to share, not for fear sharing, just because I literally like could, didn't put words together. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to share at that point. Who are the two most important people to me in my life at that point? My two little nieces. Okay. Well, I couldn't feel love for my two nieces. Like what an awful feeling. Right. And you have these two little, you know, beautiful angelic figures coming over to see you, even though you're laying in bed and you're like, oh my God, this is awful because I feel this brick wall between me and them. Right. So now when I say we're all a work in progress, right. And like, we never like fully, fully heal, but the feelings that I can have for them, what it feels like to hug them now that I get even any sense of emotion out of it is, is tenfold more enjoyable, even if the height and the level of the actual chemical feeling itself might not be there. The intelligence piece of, when well, I should say the cognitive piece of understanding how much I appreciate this more because of how much it was taken away from me, that perspective allows me to appreciate my time with them, what that hug feels like that much more. So for everyone who's going through it right now, don't feel at all bad that you're not comfortable sharing yet, right? I would say where you want to start to get comfortable with is journaling on your own. We have an app. I can, I can share you some information and stuff like that. Like being able to put, you know, um, uh, almost like tracking points to how you're feeling to be able to see the fluctuation and change over time and finding one person who here's the interesting thing, ask them how they're doing. Okay. So, because when someone else opens up to you, the brain works in weird mirror neuron type of ways that when they start opening up to you about like, if you're struggling in the slightest bit, just say to someone like, it'd really be helpful to me if I hear some of the challenges that you're facing, right? Something as oh, open that. as that. And then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, you know, like work is really hard right now. Just something that's, you know, common. Tell me why work's really hard. Oh, my boss is really hard on me, takes it out on me. You know, she, she, you know, makes an example of me in front of other people. Once that vulnerability starts to get shared, you start to feel more comfortable opening up. Right. And I'll, and I'll tell everyone, this is that part of that perspective is eventually when you start opening up, you start to feel this weight that you are carrying in like this bag, like think of, I, I almost, I describe it as like a hamper that you're taking to go wash the clothes and the hamper is really heavy when you're walking to the washing machine, uh, to the room. And then, you know, you're slowly taking out each piece of uh, clothing and putting it in the washer to make the bag lighter as you're sharing more and more. And that's what it feels like. The, the reason I'm alive right now is because I keep sharing my story all the time. So it yeah. makes it less heavy, right? So don't feel bad that you haven't shared it yet. It's going to come naturally lean on people to share back with you a little bit because that'll help your mind go to those places practice by doing it on your own in journals and stuff like that and know what the big picture 
it's going to make your overall situation feel better because what you're feeling right now, a big piece of it is the heaviness of the load that you're carrying that you're not letting out there yet. Wow. That was good. That was, I love that you said when you are having a hard time describing it yourself, just ask someone else how they're doing and listen. That's so true. And another thing you said too, that really resonated with me is you're alive because you keep sharing your story. And I, I relate to that as well. I think me being out and, and sharing this with people and it having people come to me as well and saying, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm same here. You know, I, I go through it too. And, um, I have similar experiences or I have different experiences, but I know that pain, you know, and it's just, I always say we heal together because we do. So I love that, that you're about that as well. Um, and uh, I'll, 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 I'll laugh with you on this one. Cause we were, we've been talking about campaigns that don't work. Right. So like, yeah, you ever see the campaign that says, how are you doing comma really with like the really big really yeah. and then the question mark yeah and, and it go, but the but the reason i'm bringing that up is because when i'm you know you seem to resonate with the hey if someone else is willing to open up to you then that helps you open up for the person who's not able to open up on their own at, right now and then their mother comes up to them and is like i saw this campaign like okay eric how are you doing really now it's like taking a spotlight and like shining it in my eye and being like, tell me now when you haven't been able to tell me before. Like, that's not how human communication works. Yep. Like who comes up with these campaigns, right? I, the slightest bit of vulnerability, just let a little bit of it out and say, hey, this is what I'm going through. What, you know, can you share with me yours, right? Like it doesn't need to be this like plotted out thing. Yeah, no, honestly, I think the best healing that I've ever experienced was when I sat down in a room full of, 20 people and we sat in a circle and shared all the horrible things that were going on in our lives. That was the first time in my life that I remember thinking, holy shit, if these people can make it through, I can too, you know? And by or, the way, did those people have to go, have gone through exactly what you went through? Nope. Right? All completely different. Right. Yeah. So it's true. You know, it's just true. So Eric, Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Where can people find you? We've talked about it a little bit, but where can people find your programs and what you're doing? Yeah, thanks. So the website is just samehereglobal.org. So S-A-M-E-H-E-R. It's an American sign language sign. Then global.org. And, and all the social handles are the same. It's at samehere underscore global. Um, I guess the, uh, the, the full, in one of the social channels, <laughs> just writing it straight out was taken. So I had to do the underscore in between when we first formed. So yeah. The, and, and we hang out there, like kind of like you, know, you do, you know, when you talk to people, you keep DMs open. I can't tell you how many friends you made just that you've never met before, but that like feel like family to you because they open up and share and there's vulnerability there. So yeah, come and come and say hello. Yeah. Awesome. Eric's doing great stuff on social media, off social media. Um, he's just a great person. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. The world thank to me. And for those of you listening, I hope that you've learned a lot because I know I've learned a lot. And like we've said, we are surviving the suck together and we're going to get through this together. So we love you. We're rooting for you. And let's stay connected. Keep surviving the suck.